Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? Welcome to the show. I am Mark Marin. This is What the Fuck. I am in my garage at the Cat Ranch in Highland Park, California, which is east of the center of Los Angeles. I'm excited about this show. You should be excited, too. This is going to be an interesting show. It's a little different than the type of shows we usually do. It is a two-part show. It features um, someone I I know you're all familiar with. Let's set it up this way. I got an email late June from Patton Oswalt. Wanted to know in the subject line, dot, dot, dot. Judd Apatow wants your email. Wanted to ask you before I gave it to him. I assume you're cool with this, dot, 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 Patton. Huh. Well, let me think, Patton. Of course I'm cool with it. Send Judd Apatow my email address. What does he want? I've met Judd a couple of times, but I, I, you know, I, I don't, you know, it could be anything. I, I, he might want me to star in his next film. What are the chances? No, but it doesn't matter. Here's what he said after he got my email address. I'm digging your podcast. If you ever need a burnt out Jewish writer of schlubs as a guest, I am in Judd. Now, to me, this was extremely exciting because Judd Apatow is probably the biggest name in film comedy. He's one of the original uh, comedy nerds, if not the first comedy nerd. He might have invented comedy nerds for a few reasons, primarily his his involvement in writing and directing and producing Freaks and Geeks. Uh, He was also involved on a production level on the Larry Sanders show, in the writing level, the Ben Stiller show, uh, his first film, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and he did Knocked Up. Uh, he did Funny People. He, he did a bunch of film producing. Uh, Anchorman, The Cable Guy, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, Walk Hard, uh, Super Bad. Jesus Christ, he's done a lot of movies. But this was a spectacular bit of flattery. Getting this email from Judd was, was very validating to me and it was very exciting to me. And of course, I wanted to have him on. So we went back and forth a few times with the emails trying to figure it out when we could do it. He's a busy guy. He's a big movie producer. But he's a very sweet guy. So we work out a time. So I go to his office and we lay it down and we sit and talk for a couple hours. Now, what's great about me hooking up with Judd Apatow is that him and I have a lot in common. When I watched Freaks and Geeks recently, I didn't watch it when it came out. I'm a little older than Judd. I have not. I did. I knew about Freaks and Geeks, but I just never got around to watching it. So literally just by coincidence, Within a week or so of getting the email, before I got the email from Judd or Patton, I just watched all of the Freaks and Geeks. And there was one moment in Freaks and Geeks in the whole series that resonated with me more than any other. And I'm going to talk to Judd about that because what I realized about Judd and what I know about myself was that we are deep fans of comedy, that we obviously come from something similar in the fact that whatever our childhoods were like, that comedy was really one of the few things that made us happy, that made us feel good, that took away the pain, that gave us a sense that things were going to be okay. Comedians from as early as maybe when I was 11 years old, I just always loved comedians. See, like when I was a kid, I remember going to see Jackie Vernon when I was like 11 years old. My parents took me to a dirty club. I've talked about this a bit on the show and it was just mind blowing to me. You know, comics always made me feel better. I wanted to talk to comics. I saw George Carlin when I was in fourth grade and he signed my cast. I I would watch the comics after school. I would stay up, you know, on Merv Griffin on the Mike Douglas show. I, I remember the first season of SNL. I would stay up. And, and watch all those my, you know, late on Saturday nights because I was a huge John Belushi fan and Chevy Chase fan. When I was in college in the first season of Letterman, I never missed Letterman. It, it just, it, it's just, it's a mindset. But it, was, it comes from a deep love of comedy. So I go talk to Judd and it turns out he's really the same way. That he is an extreme fan of comedy and has been since he was very young. To the point where he, when he was 16 years old, did a series of interviews with comedians, but he was able to talk to uh, 
people like Jay Leno, people like Jerry Seinfeld, Gary Shandling. And he happened to have these tapes. He had the tapes that he made when he was in high school digitized, and he gave me access to some of them. And what we're going to do with this first episode is we're going to talk to Judd a bit, and then we're going we're gonna to listen to Judd as a 16-year-old uh, interviewing Jerry Seinfeld, Jay Leno, and Gary Shanling. And what you know his intentions were around those interviews and and just but also just listening to to a, a true fan of, of comedy and, and listening to these time capsules i mean these are 1983 that these interviews were done and judd doesn't he said he doesn't listen to these at all anymore because they make him uncomfortable but i was thrilled to have him and thrilled to have the time uh with judd to to do this thing and i gotta be honest with you when i went over there I was in my standard um, sort of self-doubting, kind of existentially challenged, depressive drive down to Santa Monica to you know do an interview with really the biggest producer of films in the comedy genre that is alive right now and you know, knowing we're peers and, and having never really spent time with them and I was judging myself and something happened after these interviews, after I talked to him, I just, he's a super nice guy. And, and also like, I felt like I was talking to another, just, just a comedy fan, just a guy who loved comedy and standups. And, and, and if I am anything, you know, I am a standup for better, for worse, or, you know, wherever my career may or may not be. I mean, that's how I identify myself. That that's what I do. It was just touching. I felt much better. It changed my entire disposition after I talked to him. So so here's what here's what we have here. This first part one is going to be uh, talking to Judd about his his some of his childhood, but getting into these interviews that he did uh, when he was 16 years old and listening to some of those. And then part two will be more of a, a traditional uh, WTF interview. And as you'll find in these uh, in these interviews that Judd did when he was 16, uh, it really is uh, basically what I'm doing now. So he was way ahead of the curve on that as well. So you can just grab a mic like a stand-up. All right, I'm, I'm holding the mic. Is it happening now? Yeah, sure. This is it. All right, dear, oh, do, do you want to lay down some rules? Uh, I have no rules. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm in Judd Apatow's war room. Is this the war room? Uh, this is the situation room. Oh, the situation room. A lot of boards, things being outlined. That's right. You, have a, you seem to have a similar problem that I do is that I, I can't fucking read your writing. Well, part of the reason why I have bad handwriting is when I used to do stand-up comedy, I would write jokes on planes, and I was always embarrassed that the person next to me would see what I was writing about. Is that true? Yes, and so I, I, I found a way to have terrible handwriting that only I could read. So if I was you know, writing some uh, joke about impotency or something, exactly, he's, he's, he's showing me his handwriting, and it is unreadable. It is. me as well. But you do it by design? Really? I did it. I, I found a way, and I still do it now, so if, if, if my wife sees any weird notes or joke ideas or things that might be offensive, that there's literally no way that she can read it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking, like, man, I got the scoop. I got, there's a whole movie outlined on that board. And all I can make out, I think down on the lower left, it's, it doesn't say sperm issues? It says sperm issues. Yes, okay. it does. But that that would be in all of my movies. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just I just see turns bad and the rest is undecipherable. Uh, exactly. But, and, and it shall be until America gets to see this. All right. Well, I won't, we won't tip it anymore. But you've got like 12 projects uh, going on right now? 15? Well, right now we're finishing up shooting a movie called Bridesmaids that Kristen Wiig wrote and Paul Feig, who created Freaks and Geeks, uh, is a directing. She, uh, she wrote it with uh, Annie Mumolo, and there's an enormous amount of funny women in it. It is. Uh, is this art. an answer to the criticism that perhaps you weren't? You've been a little uh, uh, hard on women. It's funny. Is it an answer? I, you know, my, as soon as I met my wife uh, Leslie Mann, who's an actress, you know, she yeah, she's great. She, she was always fed up with how bad the parts were for women. So whenever I write, I try to write better parts for women, partially so she won't be mad at me whether or not they're for her or or anybody uh, uh and uh but i'm not a woman so my first instinct isn't to write the female movie 
Uh, and whenever I, I write women in my movies, I always try to be truthful and show them warts and all the way I show men. And it's interesting because some people, you know, say, oh, you're making the women out to be bitches. And I think, well, I don't know, Seth Rogen in the middle of an earthquake runs out of the room with his bong and doesn't worry about his pregnant girlfriend. Right. So why can't you show uh, women making mistakes? Like, I think the male mistakes are just as bad as the female mistakes. But I do know that I've showed women be much more hostile in movies uh, than a lot of people have seen before. And that's partially a, re a reaction to a lot of movies where where the women are so perfect and they're gorgeous, but they can't find a man and it, and it didn't feel truthful. Uh, it's either that or I'm just I've just been yelled at by a lot of women throughout my life. <laughs> well, I think that's I think what you say is a good point, though, that for some reason, even when men are being dicks, they're they're somewhat uh, endearing to most people. Yes. A and that the the idea that even capturing women properly on screen, it, it doesn't happen that often. I think that a lot of times they're the goal to get this yeah. beautiful woman to like me. Yeah. And in some of the movies we've done something different, which is, you know, I'm in love with her, but it might be really complicated to have a relationship with her. Yeah. And I, I remember after The 40-Year-Old Virgin came out, there was a nice review in The New Yorker, and and David Denby said, uh, you could tell it's going to be really hard for The 40-Year-Old Virgin to be in a relationship with Catherine Keener, but it'll be worth it. Yeah. And I and that inspired me, like, oh, you can show that relationships are really complicated, but it is it is worth it. And uh, over the years, I, I've realized that almost everything I thought I was right about in relationships with women, I have been wrong about. In real life? In real life. Like everything where I was very confident that I was correct, I think I was wrong completely. Yeah. I think that's a lesson we're, we're supposed to learn. I think we're yes. wired that way. <laughs> I know. It took me you know, 25 years to figure out that I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and you should be thankful every day exactly like for the, the woman you have. I mean, there was a moment in uh, in Knocked Up where Leslie says uh, to Paul Rudd, "Just because you yell doesn't mean you're not mean." Right. And and a lot of people would walk up to me and say, "Wow, that's yeah, yeah." yeah I've, yeah. I've thought that about my husband for a very long time. Really, but that is a male thing, which is I'm controlled just because you don't yell. Yes, right. I'm, I'm, I'm because I hold everything inside. Right. I'm I'm superior because I'm not expressing emotions. Right. When in fact I'm just making myself sick right. by not expressing yeah. all I'll my emotions. I'll show you. I'll get cancer. Yeah. I must be right because I'm quiet. <laughs> <laughs> is that called passive aggression? <laughs> it is. Yes. Well, I think that's a, a good a good place to start some of the conversation because I just uh, not that we didn't start it, but I listened to or I watched Freaks and Geeks for mm -hmm. the first time. Oh wow! Recently. I, I don't know. I, it, it's nothing personal. I just I, I miss a lot of things. So it's literally fresh in my mind. And it, the interesting thing to me is that the one scene that resonates almost more than the rest to me is when when Bill is watching Shandling after school. Yes. Like it's one scene. I mean, do people say that to you often? Because out of that entire series, for some reason, for me, I was like, that was beautiful. Uh, it you know, it's. You know, there's a scene in the show, for people who haven't seen it, where Bill Haverchuk, played by Martin Starr, comes home after school, and you could tell he's a latchkey kid and no one's around, and his, his mom's a former stripper. And he looks really sad, and he watches Gary Shandling on the Dinosaur show while making a grilled cheese sandwich and eating chocolate cake. And he goes from being really sad to laughing his ass off. And The Who is playing that song, I'm, I'm the one, I'm one, or something yeah. like that. And after we, we made it, uh, Jake Kazan said to me, that's the most personal thing you've ever done in your career. And it's the best thing you've ever done. That, that scene. That scene. And that was probably the turning point for my whole career was realizing that the little moments uh, that I thought were boring or, or just not interesting to other people are actually the things that people would be most interested in about in my work. I always thought I was a bore. That's why I quit stand-up comedy. I, I figured I'm not angry enough. I don't have a strong enough point of view. So I became good at writing for other comedians or writing movies in the voice of other comics. And it literally took me 20 years to think, oh, these little things that happened to me are what people will connect with. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 it's, and sometimes 
I, I, it's just, I'm a little uh, dumbfounded in the sense that like out of all the things that I, I didn't read anything on that and that resonated with me that there are moments that you capture and even in, you know, in, in, in the films where they're undeniably real. So, so there's something that they have that transcends, you know, anything that can be manufactured. Yes, I, I think that when you watch a scene like that, you realize that happened. And it happened it, to you. It happened to me, and I used to go home every day at 3 o'clock from school. My friends played sports. I had a lot of friends, but I didn't play sports. And I would go home and watch The Mike Douglas Show, Merv The Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin, The Tonight Show, Letterman when he, when he started. And, I mean, there was a fair amount of time where I was watching TV from about 3, 3.30 till 1.30 in the morning. Right. For years. Was your mom not around? I lived uh, with my dad after my parents got divorced, and I just didn't do any after-school activities. And he didn't care? No one cared. I mean, I just went in my room and closed <laughs> the door, and I was in my fantasy world watching uh, you know, Michael Keaton do stand-up on the Mike Douglas show, and I couldn't have been happier, and I look back on it as a great time. I don't think, oh, that was so sad. I was alone in my room. I was like Bill, laughing my ass off watching Jay Leno in 1979 on the Mike Douglas show. I, see, I had that fucking same experience. Because yeah. one of the, like, I still remember one of the moments I decided to be a comic was watching him, Jay Leno. Yes. I don't know if it was on Mike Douglas, but I remember the joke. Yeah. Like, they were cutting away to a commercial, and he was on that ridiculous set. And he mm. said, what happens now? Do, does the chair fold up into the wall like we're on a game show? Am I yes. going to disappear? Yeah. <laughs> and it was just a moment. It was a beat. But I remember thinking it was the most hilarious thing I'd ever heard in my life. I remember going to see the Merv Griffin show being taped. That's how into it in I New was. York? Uh, in Los Angeles when oh. I was in high school. And Dr. Ruth was the other guest. Yeah. And she's taking calls, giving sex advice. And Jay Leto realizes that this makes no sense because the show doesn't air for a month. And where are the calls coming from? Like, is there someone backstage who's <laughs> like, he, so he calls, he calls her on it. Like, these are not real calls. Where are these people coming from? And I thought, that is the coolest guy in the world. I want to be that guy. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is all I ever wanted to be when I was a kid. I wanted to be like Leno and Seinfeld and, and, and Michael Keaton as a stand-up. Yeah, I vaguely remember Michael Keaton as a stand-up. It seems that my guys, like, I remember, yeah, I remember seeing Leno on shows. I remember, I don't remember Seinfeld that much. I remember Richard Lewis a lot uh, on Letterman. David yeah. Brenner. David Brenner used to oh, be yeah, the always. king of the Mike Douglas show. Yeah, yeah, he would be, you know, he was, he guest-hosted, like, uh, The Tonight Show, like, 70, 80 times or something. Yeah. So those were your guys, Keaton, uh, Seinfeld, and, uh, and who was the other one? Uh, and, on and Jay Le Leno. And Leno, I, I mean... I used to love Jeff Altman. Used to make me I laugh. I see him so the other hard. night. Yeah, I said we'd mentioned him on the podcast recently. You know, he's he's. I still go to the comedy store sometimes, and he's he's back around. You know, the butt steak guy in the oh, chair. Oh, so gonna, funny! Pulling up his pants, and, and and I couldn't get enough of it. And I've looked back on it and wondered, you know, why did I like it so much? You know, what was it that I was attracted to, where I was obsessed to the point of highlighting the TV Guide. So I knew when the comics were on each show. Did you read my favorite jokes in Parade Magazine? That, that was that Sunday. It was a Sunday insert. Maybe you didn't no, have it. I didn't, it Maybe it's be, you're a little younger than me. But it used to be in Parade Magazine. The last page used to be a thing called My Favorite Jokes, where they just have comedians' jokes. Yeah, written there. I, awesome. mean, I used to transcribe Saturday Night Live you, because there was no uh, there was no VCR when it first aired. So I would record it on a. Audio cassette. How old? What the first season you talking like about? Like in seventy seven or so. You like ten? How old were you? Ten. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I have the transcriptions of Bill Murray's Oscar picks bit from Weekend Update in notebooks. Why did you do that? I don't know. I think that I I was in some way trying to figure out how do I get in that world? How does it work? I wanted huh. to look at it on paper. I didn't know that's what I was doing. I just, right, but I did it because you thought it was so it. funny. I wanted to break it down somehow. Really? Like an equation? I guess. It wasn't conscious. I did just, you do that with stand-up as well? I didn't. I did it with <laughs> Saturday Night Live sketches and <laughs> and some Twilight Zones. I, I would write out the opening to the Twilight Zone. I wanted to be able to tell it to my friends. So you performed it? I, to your friends, I mean. No, not really. I mean, just maybe yeah, like, a, a, a line or two. Right, right. But you know, in okay, so in seventy five, I was eight, 
That's when Saturday Night Live came season, yeah. out. And Steve Martin hit 76, 77, 78. That's the height of Richard Pryor. Monty Python was hitting America. I was losing my mind with comedy nerdness. Well, it wasn't even invented yet. You were just, you were an original. Yeah, exactly. The comedy nerds <laughs> didn't exist yet. You were just a kid who was precocious in a sense. You know, because like when you think about like what a lot of other kids, because I was the same way in that I resonated with these comics. They made me feel better. And I thought they had, they had a certain amount of control, it seemed. Yes. That, that they could handle shit. Well, they, they had a stance on why the world didn't make sense. Yeah. And they would call, call everyone on their shit. And I look back and think, I must have been angry that I wanted right. Leno to call everybody out and Seinfeld to say, look how ridiculous all is. And especially George Carlin, uh, anyone who called bullshit, you know, I couldn't get uh, enough of those people. I saw him when I was in like fourth grade, I think, or fourth or fifth grade, I went to see George Carlin. And I remember those records. I remember having yeah. the... And they, I, you know, I'll tell you, Harry Shearer said something to me that, I, and, and just to get your opinion on it, he said the reason people are comedians is that uh, it's to, to have control over why people laugh at you. I've looked at it this way. When someone is laughing, I know they don't dislike me. <laughs> I don't know if they like me, but I know in that moment they don't dislike me. Yeah, yeah. And that's why you know, I get you know, the, the need for constant approval. Because if you're smiling, I know you don't hate me. <laughs> I don't know if it's positive, but it's not in the negative. <laughs> and that's why you know, when, uh, when we were making funny people, and, and I thought a lot about comedy and why I, I was obsessed with it, uh, to the point of like sitting down and listening to 30 of your podcasts in several days, uh, a lot of it was about that. You know, why do I need that much approval? Is there any point where I get enough approval and I'm full? And I've realized that there is no point. Really? I'm, I, I received a letter from Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, who I used to work for for a long time at DreamWorks, uh, was trying to reach me to say that he liked Knocked Up. And I so wanted a letter from him. I just, I, Paul Fee got one when we made Freaks and Geeks, and I was so jealous that he got a letter saying that he loved Freaks and Geeks. And I didn't return the call, and I, and I, and I told my assist, assistant, can you say Judd's out of town, and, and is it possible that he could write a note just so I could have the letter? <laughs> I wanted, I knew a compliment was coming, and I'm so wounded, I needed to have it forever. And he sent me uh, the dream letter, the beautiful, yeah. you know, beautiful letter yeah. with nothing but kindness. Uh, you know, a great guy. It's just, just what you want and to feel whole it. as a person. And yeah. I have it. Yeah. But what happened afterwards is I, I thought to myself, this is the best you can do. Yeah. Who else do I want to compliment me? How many of these do I need to feel good about my work and myself? And and how how it doesn't last and the wound is still there. What is the wound? Cuz uh, I know I yeah. have it. Have you figured out what it is? I I you know I I'm not sure exactly. Uh, you know, I've had therapists who say everything that happened to you happened in the first three years of your life. So yeah, it Let may it just go. it may just be the way your mom looked at you. Really? I mean, who knows? Yeah. Uh, you believe that? I I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I do know that in every situation I walk into, and it doesn't matter, you know, whether things are going well for me in life or career wise or not. I feel like the weirdo. I feel I feel like the awkward guy picking up my kids from school. I feel that way on the set of my own movies. Uncomfortable in your own skin? Just, uh, I, yeah. I don't, I never feel like I own the moment. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I feel like... You feel like you're a victim of the moment? I just feel you're like, you know, a punch could come from any direction, <laughs> even if I'm everyone's boss. It doesn't matter. Like, that's what I'm realizing is, you know, it, you have to just realize, okay, that's how you're wired and... So you're able to transcend it? And that it's, if I just acknowledge it, 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 some of it will disappear, and that's a little bit of what Funny People was about, which is he gets sick and says, what, you know, what was the point of all this? I'm here in this house, and I'm all alone, and everyone outside likes me. I don't have a, you know, strong relationships, uh, and why did I do this? And that's what you know, people say sometimes you make movies or you write things to find out why you make, made the movie. And you know that's what that whole experience was about. And that a lot of that was drawn from your early career with uh, you know well I mean in the sense that you know you were sort of you had a mentor 
in Shanling, right? I had yeah, I had a bunch of mentors. People were very nice to me when I was young. I always try to clarify to people the reason why it took me so long to make a movie about a mentor relationship uh, was because people were so nice that there was no story. You know, Shanling hired me to write the Grammys for him uh, in 1990. How old were you? Uh, so I was 23. Yeah, and then he hired me on the Larry Sanders show after the Ben Stiller show got canceled um, and and has been helpful to me on everything I've ever done. So there's no great Shandling story. I used to write jokes for Jim Carrey and, and, and worked on some of his movies. So I had to fabricate a character that was an amalgam of a lot of people. But slowly you realize, oh, it's just me. It's just the worst part of me. Mm -hmm. And... And then suddenly it all makes sense. Like So uh, almost like your dreams are supposed to be everybody in your dreams is you. So now you can look in the same way that in your movie, somehow or another, everyone's you. It, it does it, it does work that way. It's different sides of you. Here's me at my worst. Here's me at my angriest. Here's, Here's me as me. a pregnant woman. <laughs> exactly. Well, yes. Here's me at my neediest. Here's me <laughs> screaming at the crowd. I mean, so your thoughts are coming out in different ways. And some of it is observations of other people. You know, some of the rants in Funny People were based on me watching Rodney Dangerfield at one in the morning yell at the crowd. And, you know, he, one night he was in his bathrobe or something. Sure, he used to get out of his car in his bathrobe. Where, where was this? In, uh, at, the, at the improv, and he gets on stage, and he just didn't do his act, and, and it was fantastic. It's, you know, your favorite comedy fan moments. Yeah. And he said to the crowd, yeah, sometimes life makes perfect sense, and then you come. <laughs> And then he says, there's a woman there, and he says, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, yeah, you, you, you'd be different. You'd love me for me. <laughs> and it was brutal. Yeah, it was brutal yeah. to watch. Because uh, at that point, when he was that, before he was medicated, it, the, the sadness and the anger was, on, he, he couldn't hide it anymore. And when he'd get a few cocktails. And it, yeah, and it, was, it was fantastic to watch. And I, 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 I've seen a bunch of people have that meltdown where it's one in the morning and they drop the act and they tell you what they're going through. Yeah. Uh, and that's my those, act. Yes, exactly. Well, that's my, <laughs> that's, that's my favorite part of comedy is, is you know, when you Does get it... to that next place. And when uh, my favorite scene in Funny People in terms of the performance was Adam singing the song at the piano, uh, Fuck George Simmons, and... He just improvised it. He said, tonight I'm going to do something on the piano. And we were trying to create one of those moments where someone just has the meltdown in front of the crowd. And after we shot it, I, I said to Adam, I don't know if we could use that. That was pretty crazy and pretty dark. dark. Yeah. And then one of the editors put it together, and I thought, yeah, that, that captures those moments. I, yeah. I, I remember seeing Paul Rodriguez one night late at the improv just go on a rant, and, and he... It was one of the funniest sets I've ever seen in my entire life. You don't see it as much as you used to, you know. I, I mean, in the clubs, I don't know how often you go out there anymore. But you know, there was a time that generation, there, there was, there seemed to be a little more freedom and and a little less eyes on everybody. You know, you can still see it at the comedy store, and I don't go to the improv much. But I mean, that there, you, there was a time it seemed in the '80s where the meltdown was fairly commonplace. I, I remember seeing Larry David, sure, rant at the crowd. Uh, and and the the moment you know those moments between midnight and one thirty in the morning at the improv is where a, a lot of the great things happened. And I, what did you just hang out there? I was the MC. I, I used to MC four or five nights a week at, at the improv in Hollywood. What year? How old were you then? From about you know, you know eighty eight to ninety three. Uh huh. So from the time I was about you know twenty one to twenty four years old. So I was there every night. I watched everybody, and. I remember, you know, when Michael Richards got in trouble for for his yeah his his performance that night. I had seen him do things like that, but it really was for comedy's sake. He always had a point. It was crazy and experimental and daring, mm -hmm. but it certainly wasn't racist at all. So when I saw that, I thought, oh, he just did it bad that night, right? And it came across wrong but yeah i'd seen a lot of comedians do things like that sure and in the age of uh, youtube and everyone having a camera you can't do that anymore and i remember when we were working on funny people sandler was working on his act and it was scary to think we were going to write all these songs for a, i mean i'm sorry all these jokes for a bitter character and they they started appearing on youtube 
as if it was Adam doing his act. Right. And that that's scary for comics now. Yeah, I I, I think also that with with uh, Michael Richards, the context people don't know him as a comic. Do you, you know our experience of people, you know, even as Sandler as a comic, I think that gets further away for some people as well, doesn't it? I mean, he doesn't do it much anymore. No, that that was for me the treat of making the movie uh, is that I am a gigantic fan of his stand-up comedy. So making the movie was a way to force him to write a new hour, uh-huh. and we would go to comedy clubs, and he did it, and he would do stand-up, and he was hilarious. Some, I mean, some nights it would go awfully, and some nights he would kill, uh, and it was way dirtier than his act used to be, because that's what I was requesting was a certain. Uh, an act that was filled with denial I I thought well George Simmons doesn't actually tell you the truth and you might understand from the context of the movie that he's doing a silly joke but actually it's covering up for a real wound but I didn't want him to be Richard Pryor I wanted him to be more like Rodney yeah well that scene where you had some of those guys sitting around that table who was it Monty Hoffman uh, Paul Reiser Carol Liefer Carol Liefer George Wallace was there that that Mark was, Schiff. I mean, that is a crew of comics outside of Riser that not not many people know. I mean, this is an interesting thing about comedy, and I think you know it. It's just you know how many there are, how many of that generation have sort of disappeared, or or no one knows anymore. Do you ever are you ever saddened by that? I mean, I know you seem to be on the pulse of what's happening, but I mean, in terms of that old guard or like people that you knew growing up, are you saddened by what happens to comics as they get older? I did go into Best Buy once, and a comic who was hilarious was a salesman there. And that was rough. That made me sad, because I thought, I was never as funny as that guy. Yeah. That guy really used to kill. And it happened another time at a car dealership, because there were those guys who would rip the house down. Yeah. But at some point, you can't go on the road anymore. If you want to have a, a life and kids... You can't be on the road 35 weeks. But also there's the, the element that that same sort of wound that you're talking about can swallow people. And, and the fact is, is that somehow or another, uh, for reasons that maybe you know, I don't know, uh, you were able to manage your talent and, and be, you know, uh, political and ambitious enough to get what you wanted to get done, done. I was very lucky that part of my dysfunction as a person is a terror of bankruptcy uh, financial bankruptcy, not emotional bankruptcy, uh, sure. and, and so <laughs> spiritual bankruptcy. So, as a young person, I thought ten years ahead. So, I had a, a show like this in high school where I interviewed comedians like Leno and Seinfeld and John Candy. How did you manage to get hold of them? I used to call other publicists and say I was from a radio station in New York, and all the publicists were too lazy to look look it up and figure out that it was a high school radio station. But I was afraid that I was gonna not be able to take care of myself in my life. Yeah. So in my head, I, I always thought, well, what do I need to do? Okay, I'll interview these comedians and they'll tell me how to be a comedian. They'll tell me how to write. They'll tell me what it's like. And to be 16 years old and sit down with Jerry Seinfeld and for a half an hour, he literally tells you how he writes a joke, how he first got on stage, how long it took him to get good, it just changed everything for me because I thought, okay, it takes seven years to find your character. When did this all start being funny as a kid? Yeah, I guess so, although it was not like a real... I wasn't a class clown, per se. I mean, I wrote some funny things for the newspaper, and I was always trying to be funny around my friends. And watching comedy was the thing I enjoyed more than anything else. I was obsessed with... I knew every comedian, I knew all their routines, you know, and. I loved it so much. That's how I got into it. I wanted to be around it, you know, and I never thought I'd be any good at it, but that turned out to be an advantage because it made me work harder than most other people work at it. And when so did I, you first yeah. do it? Um, I did a Catch a Rising Star one night. My first time on stage, I, I write the whole act out, you know, and I put it there on my bed and I rehearse it over and over again. I'm standing there with a bar of soap, you know. <laughs> like it's a microphone and I get up on stage and I got this thing memorized Cole I get up on there it's gone I can't remember a word a thing I was I stood there for about 30 seconds with saying absolutely no just standing there freaking out I just couldn't believe that all these people are looking at me and then 
I was able to just remember the subjects I wanted to talk about. <laughs> this is absolutely true. I'm not embellishing this at all. I stood there and I went, the beach. Uh, driving. Your parents. And people started laughing because well, they, I didn't, they thought this is my act. <laughs> and I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't even really hear them laughing. I was like absolutely panicking. And I, I think I lasted about three minutes and I just got off. And that was my first show. And what was it supposed to be? Like, what was the original jokes that you wrote out? Oh, there's a couple I'm still doing. The bumper car routine, I don't know if you've ever seen that. I do this thing about, there's always one bad driver in the bumper cars. You know, it's like one helpless kid who's like, as soon as the ride gets started, he gets stuck in a pack of empty cars. Yeah. Father and son team are spinning around, you know, it's that. How old were you when you did it the first time? Uh, 22. 21 maybe. I was still in college, I think. And what did you study in college? Uh, theater and film and television. I did two majors. And uh, how long did it take you to develop the act so that you got laughs steady? Uh, I, it depends on what you mean by steady laughs. I mean, the worst I ever was was I would bomb every other time. That's how bad it was in the beginning. And then it, it progressed to that point, and eight months after I began, I was making a living. And Catch Rising Star? Uh, the comic strip, actually. And how does that work when you uh, audition and then get steady work? Well, you audition, you start off at three in the morning, and you fight your way through the order, by hopefully by doing better than the guy that they put on ahead of you. And they, next night they put you on ahead of him. Then you try and do better than the guy who and they watch you and uh, it's, it's of course a lot of politics but basically if you're good people notice it. That's the greatest thing about comedy which is really the big reason I got into it is if you've got talent it's unmistakable and no one misses it and you don't have to wait around for a break. Yeah. It's very easy to get a break. It's very hard to be good enough. So now you're 16 years old, you're talking to Jerry Seinfeld even though he wasn't huge yet uh, in the sense that he didn't get huge for another almost 10 years mm -hmm. from when you talked to him when you were 16. But he was your hero, or one of them. Yes, I used to watch him on the Merv Griffin show and the Tonight Show. Right. I think he started doing talk shows in the late 70s, yeah. Seinfeld. Yeah. I, I just know that because at the Comedy Magic Club, he signed The Wall in 1978. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to me... He, he he was the greatest. There were the three or four people that, yeah. that I loved, and Seinfeld was definitely one of them. And I used to go see him at Caroline's in New York because it was the only comedy club that would allow kids in. On Ninth Avenue, the old one. Yes, because it was a supper club, so I could right. go there and have dinner with my friends when I was 15, 16 years old and go see Pee Wee Herman or Howie Mandel or whoever. Oh, my God, that's so long ago. That club, it was a nice club, the separate room or the dinner club. It wasn't the South Sea, it wasn't the second one or the third one, it was that first one. The first one, the first one, it, it seemed to seat about 85, 90 yeah. people and yeah. people would have a fancy dinner and and see a comedian and it almost felt like something from the 30s yeah oh yeah it was like a like a like a burlesque not burlesque but like it had it had class it seemed like it had class but like when you're sitting there you seem pretty calm you don't seem you're a fan but you're also like you're fairly deliberate you have a, a, a plan you have an interview i mean there's one of these interviews i, I think it was the one with seinfeld where you're like uh, well i think that's it you're, you're literally <laughs> How, were you freaking out inside or were you what were you really trying to do there i truly think that it, it happened right after my parents got divorced and i just thought i gotta get my shit together i gotta get something going in this life i, I really need to take care of myself yeah because when your parents get divorced they just make terrible mistakes yeah and they fight and you see that adults have very real flaws yeah and I think my instinct was, oh, my God, maybe they're wrong about all sorts of stuff they've been telling me. <laughs> and and uh, if my mom thinks my dad's the devil and if my dad is enraged at my mom, then maybe some of this advice they've been giving me is wrong about things. I mean, I don't think he's the devil. Uh, he's, he's very nice to me. And it just it just completely threw me. Like, what is it? What? Because it's important that you just believe your parents. Like, yeah. They know what they're talking about. Oh, and you, yeah. and there's a comfort in their sane. Yeah. And so when you see them, you know, at, at a terrible moment, at their worst, and they're yeah. screaming at each other, and yeah. it's really like madness for a couple of years, uh, my reaction was, first... Nothing to, is true. I, I don't believe anything. I, I don't know 
I, I, I can't rely on these people because they can't rely on each other. Yeah. And they've bailed on each other. Yeah. And I felt in some way, I felt bailed on. Like, yeah, oh, our whole family isn't important enough for you guys to just figure out how to get along. You're yeah. literally going to, you know, one of you is going to leave and I'm going <laughs> to see the other one like randomly. And uh, it, it was terrible. It's awful. Uh, and so going to talk to these comedians felt like, oh, okay. This is the direction that safety is in. So when you were asking Seinfeld about you know where he saw his career going, you were like, "This is an option." This, yeah. The real question was, "Where is my career right. going?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I really was curious. I mean, how do you get on stage? Is do you sign up? Yeah. How many minutes do they let you do? You you and, were in <laughs> sort of a crisis mode. I was in total crisis <laughs> mode. I was I was losing my mind. <laughs> I thought I need a job, but I also had a sense that my parents were not going to be able to afford college. Yeah. Because they were having financial problems, and even though I was, you know, getting ready to go to college, I didn't have a lot of comfort that I would be able to complete it. Right. And uh, so. I thought, well, why don't you just jump right into your dream? Just have the balls to do it. And all these things you were doing in the guise of, you, you were using these on the radio show in high school. I, I probably aired four of them. I mean, right. the entire idea of interviewing comedians was a ruse. I, I, it was just an excuse to, to, to force Jay Leto to talk to me for an hour and a half. Because <laughs> every kid has that. Like, you want to meet a star and you want to ask them how they do it. And especially if you want to do what they do. So how can I get in a room and say... How do you do it? Right. I know to a normal fan, you might give me 90 seconds. Right. But if I can pretend that I have a radio show, you'll give me an hour. And also, they, they, comedians love to talk. I mean, like, I know, like, I've done interviews with, you know, college kids and whatever. Yes. You're like, oh, I, this is a fine opportunity for me to be influential. Exactly. This child seems very impressed with me. <laughs> I must be important because look how he's listening to me as if it might change his life. It did, though. <laughs> it did change my life. And, and when... Those comedians were in that stage. Yeah, people weren't that interested in them. And the Leno thing. What was interesting in in, in you talking to Leno in 1983 is that he was the least disciplined out of all of them. That he was just a sort of a kind of a the proletariat comic. Like you know, he didn't write anything down. It, you know, he saw it specifically as a job. You know, if you can't yes. do your job on any night, then what kind, you shouldn't be doing it. Exactly. And and he was really kind of sarcastic. And and you brought that up. You were very concise with him. Um, how would you describe your comedy if you had to say it? It's, it seems a little, you know, sarcastic and observational. Yeah, that about sums it up, I guess. Uh, sarcastic and observational. I guess, I, I, I don't know. I, I try not to, you know, I don't even say I'm a comedian on stage. I mean, I just kind of do it and let people form their own opinion about, about what it is. I mean, to sit and pontificate about uh, the uh, wonder of it all is a bit... Uh, narcissistic I, I don't know you just do it and if it seems instinctively funny you know that's the thing uh, is you move along in the business and you get a little bit more experience like now I can go into Letterman think of a joke that day and do it on the show and 99% chance it'll work whereas the old days you kind of have to go over the routine more and more you know the, the, the more experience you get the more attitude your material becomes and you can uh, you can just talk and it comes out funny, you know. Working with audiences is like being an animal trainer somewhat, you know. If you go in the ring and you're a little bit nervous and your hand's shaking and the animals sense it and they rip you apart. And the same thing with audiences. You know, if you get up and go, oh, hi, everybody, uh, <coughs> how you doing? <coughs> People go, oh, get off the stage. They're not going to laugh. But if you use a little bit of authority and kind of take charge, you know. Is most of your humor worked out on the stage? I mean, some people work it out on paper and they oh, no, think I don't about have it. anything on paper. No, I've never, I've never written anything down. I suppose I should. Uh, everybody says, oh, you should make notes. I, I seem to remember the funniest stuff and forget the stuff that isn't that funny. Once in a while I forget a funny one, but... And no, I don't write anything down. I, I should, though. You're right. I see you have notes and everything there. I don't have any of that. Oh, I should keep copious notes, but I don't. So how do you keep it from getting boring if you're playing so many places every night? Um, I mean, it's a job. You have to do your work, you know? I mean, you can't... It's not a hard way to make a living. It's a fun way. You make a lot of money for having essentially a good time. And if you can't get up for it, well, then get out of the business. You know, people say, well, gee, what happens when you're just not in the mood? Well, I mean, the worst I ever have is a bad hour. You know, most people have a bad day. I mean, if I can't fake it for an hour. You know, my wife can tell. My wife will say, gee, you didn't seem quite up as you usually are. But I don't think most of the audience could can tell. I mean, because you're a professional. It's like anything else. You know, you, you do your job. You can't say, oh, I'm too tense tonight. I can't go on, ladies and gentlemen. 
do you work? You know, that's that's part of the business. But don't you ever get bored of it? Uh, I get a kick out of doing it. I change it a little bit on a nightly basis, and you try out new jokes and whatnot. I mean, the whole idea is to keep coming up with new things and new ideas. Sometimes you work an hour just to get one new line in, just to get to that po point, you know. And uh, and that's what I do. No, it doesn't get boring for me. I really like it. Well, you know, my, my, my parents got divorced, and my mom moved to Southampton. And we, my parents used to own a restaurant, and the bartender at the restaurant was Rick Messina. Oh, my God. Right? So Rick Messina, who's you know, the great manager who represents Tim Allen. And, and also managed uh, Rodney's Club uh, in New York for he, years, in Dangerfields. No, he managed the Eastside Comedy Club on Long Island, which was the first comedy club on, on the island. Okay. And, uh, and a bunch of clubs. Oh, he didn't work with Dangerfield? I, I, he may have later, okay. but, but it, it was Eastside Comedy Club and then East End Comedy Club. So when my parents got divorced, my mom had no money, got a job seating people at her former bartender's comedy club. And I, I mean, this was the dream situation for me. So this is ninth grade, <laughs> ninth grade, and it's the summer, and my mom is seating people at a comedy club. Yeah. And so every weekend I would go watch every show, and it was Leno. Paul Prevenza, first show I ever saw of a young comedian. And years later I thought, that's really kind of the worst job ever. What, what could my mom have gotten paid sure, to do Sure, to be it? a hostess at a comedy club. And I like to think that she did it because she knew I would like it. She never said that. You can't ask her? My, my mom, she died a few years I'm ago. I'm sorry. And, and that's how I like to look at it like, that was like a gift to me. Yeah. That's sweet. So what, so, okay, so you, you saw Leno, you saw Provenza, you saw, uh, this was 1980 what? So this is 82 or 83, and then I got a job at Rick Messina's Comedy Club after that as a dishwasher, and I, only so I could see the comedians. Then I realized, I can't see the comedians, I'm in the fucking kitchen. Yeah. So I got a, <laughs> so I switched to a busboy, <laughs> yeah. and I was at Eastside Comedy Club, and, that, and Eddie Murphy used to come in, and Rosie O'Donnell was just starting at that time. And I would watch the, the comedians, and I, and, and I thought, I, I don't have the balls to tell these people I want to do this. It may have been obvious to them, but I, I, I couldn't even tell anyone I was so scared. So after I did the radio program, in, in my senior year of high school, I finally got up at open mic nights. And it was awful, just so awful. So it's but, paralyzingly, it's, it's so terrifying. And, and John Mulrooney's hosting the open mic oh, nights. What happened to him? And he just... I mean, it was pandemonium how much he would kill. Yeah. And he would insult the crowd. I and, remember and him. He was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he still is. Uh, and But to go on after that, when you have no idea what you're doing and you're 17 years old. And you had to wait for God knows how long. I mean, yeah. there was that whole thing that people forget that like literally if you were doing an open mic, you didn't get any special treatment. And the, the host, be, it all depended on his humanity, you know, how yeah. he was going to treat you and what he was going to put you through. And there'd be 20 comedians all who get five minutes. And yeah. You never knew if Mulroney might, you know, he might do 20 minutes between acts. Right. And so you might get on at 8.05 oh, yeah. or one in the morning. So you started, the, you're like the real deal. You, I mean, you came from a, a real comedy background almost in a way that none of us did. I mean, you know, many of us who started in those open mics didn't watch comedy till we were stuck in those rooms and we had to. But you were actually just compelled to be there yes. as a busboy. What were you, like 16 then? Yes, 15? 16. That's hilarious. So you wanted nothing more than to be in the comedy business from early on. From the earliest time I understood that people got on stage with mics. <laughs> <laughs> I never had any interest in doing anything that I'm doing right now. It was not part of the dream. If you if you listen to those interviews, it's all joke writing. It's not screenwriting. I, I'm not talking about how I love movies and I love uh, paying attention to what the cinematographers are doing. I literally want to understand the mechanics of a dick joke. That that's my 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 vision quest. Yeah, and that's was what to you, figure that out. And that's what you got from. Uh... From Gary, I mean that that it was interesting. There's a couple moments that are great in these in these interviews. Is that, and I know it just from doing because you know, you're really doing some version of the show I'm doing now. You know, when you're 16, without you know, the, without the courage to go personal, right? 
But it's there because, but you know, there's a vulnerability to you because of your age, and yes. and there, you know, you, you wouldn't expect you to get too deep yes. in, in terms of like you know what their life is, or could you help me with my parents' divorce? <laughs> that would have been the best version of it. If I asked Seinfeld how to write a joke and then went, my parents were fighting a lot, and why do you think that they have this animosity towards each other? But that's the only difference between what you did when you were 16 and what I'm doing now. <laughs> exactly. Yes. But there, there's a moment. There's moments where you know where I'm interviewing on this show where I'm thoroughly entertained by, by who I'm sitting with. And, and it's a great feeling to be like, there's times in these interviews where you laugh, where it's so clear that this is like, this is the best show in the world. I mean, I'm oh, the yeah. only one here. Well, I, and, when I interviewed Seinfeld the first time, my brother was with me and you could hear I heard him the laughing. Second laugh, yeah. And he's laughing in the background. And you know, to us, it was like being in the room with Paul McCartney. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it was. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. I think to some extent, yeah. we had a vision for what Jerry Seinfeld was, more than Jerry Seinfeld had a vision right. for what Jerry Seinfeld was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he like, thought he was the best. Yeah, well, it, was, it was like being in a small club seeing R.E.M. in Athens, Georgia in the early 80s. Right, we, right. We knew what we were seeing and who we were talking to. A really to. small club, just exactly. you and your brother. Exactly. And you're like, because like, ha what happened to me when I was listening to that, I did what you do when you listen to good comedy with somebody else. Like, you started laughing at the bumper car joke, and then I started laughing in my car yeah. coming over here, because I don't know that joke, exactly. but it's a great joke it's a great observation and there and and you know the great thing about it was most of those people were very very nice and so it also made me feel like oh this is a world of uh, of strange people who might accept me one day i don't feel that different than seinfeld he grew up on long island i grew up on long island so did paul reiser like i felt like oh i am one of you i just haven't figured out figured out how to do it yet right do you now the 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 shambling conversations so that was the first time you talked to him? That was the first time I ever talked to Gary. Somehow I, I hunted down a very weak publicist and convinced them to let me talk to Gary. I guess at the time that wasn't a big deal because Gary was just opening up for Joan Rivers in Vegas or something. He was still a very young comedian. Well, that's, well, that's interesting that the theme of all, uh, of all of these clips is that you know none of them were as big as, uh, as they became. I mean, this was just yeah. them. None of them had broken yet. Yes, I just... I have to be proud of one thing. Yeah. I had good taste in comics. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I did like the right guys. You know, I was a comedy writer before I was a comedian. Really? Who did you write for? I wrote for Sanford and Son and Welcome Back, Cotter. Really? And, uh, gee, the, the Harvey Corman show. I wrote for about six sitcoms before I said uh, I want to do stand-up. So I have, a, I have an ability to write jokes, which I like to do. So every now and then... Uh, uh, I'll be writing about my life, and I'll just think of a joke, and it's just purely, really a joke. But uh... what, would, what would be like an example of how a, a piece of material got thought of and how it developed? Um, well, and I'll tell you an interesting story. That I mean, this is unlike other material of mine. Um, I do this joke in my act that I've heard every excuse a woman not going to bed with me. I think I've heard them all. I remember this one girl actually said to me, uh, look, not with this Falkland Island thing. <laughs> and I said, that was over a year ago. And she said, I still haven't gotten over it yet. And I said, well, I can understand that, Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> now, I could tell you about the derivation of so many jokes, because some of them take literally a year from the time I get an idea to the time I get the line exactly right. And I'll tell you what I'm working on and I'll, after this. I'll tell you a real current one. Okay. So, what, But with the Falcon Island joke, I got the idea. Uh, when the Falcon Islands were going on, is it about two years ago now? Yeah. I actually wrote a joke where I used to come out and I used to say, uh, boy, I'm just not meeting any women. I don't know if it's this Falcon Island thing or what. <laughs> and then as time went by, I changed it to... Uh, I've heard every excuse for a woman not going to bed with me. I remember this one girl said, not with this Falkland Island thing, yeah. which is very hip and it gets a laugh. And I was telling David Brenner that joke. And David says, then you ought to say, uh, that was over a year ago. Because that's funny, because, you know, yeah. you should say, well, that was over a year ago. Yeah. And then I said, well, she still hasn't gotten over it yet. <laughs> and... Then later came the tag of, uh, well, I can understand that, Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> so it just kind of kept going, you know. It, it, it just kept going over time, that joke. And it really is a joke, although it is my 
sort of perspective. And you said there's another one? There's one I'm working on now. I actually did this joke on The Tonight Show, but in a different way. Uh, this, is, this is also just a stupid joke, really. But uh, I said I've been taking... Uh, I went to a health food store, and I've been taking bee pollen, bumblebee pollen, yeah. to increase my... It's supposed to increase your lovemaking stamina. So I've been taking about 2,000 milligrams of bee pollen a day... <laughs> And uh, the other night I woke up in the middle of the night and started to fling myself against the screen door. <laughs> and I started to shout, someone turn off the porch light. <laughs> and it's interesting because I don't know what the, how this joke is ultimately going to evolve because I actually did this joke on The Tonight Show where I just said, uh, I took 2,000 milligrams of bee pollen and now I'm afraid the first time I make love I'm going to die right afterwards. Yeah that's what bees do and then I said or I'll wake up the next morning I'll be flinging myself against the screen door <laughs> but now I've added the part about turn off the porch light which I think paints the picture of uh, what <laughs> bees do which is go for the light you know yeah. now well just to be I mean just to tell you then this is not a, a great joke either but I do this joke about um, I read this article in the newspaper that we tend to pick out mates who look like us yeah which is a scary thought. We tend to pick out mates who look like us. So I've been standing in front of the mirror with a wig and dress on, so I'll wear <laughs> one of the fear. Now, what's funny is I originally, when I wrote that joke, I used to say, uh, I'll stand in front of the mirror with lipstick on, so I'll know her when I see her. <laughs> and then I tried, uh, I'll stand in with, with a wig and lipstick on. And so you just keep yeah. playing around with it. But it's... You play around with it not in it. I don't play around with it always in an intellectual way. I play around with it instinctually. So I'll get on the stage, and because I am, I really am naturally funny. It comes from instinct. I just start. I ad lib different things in that joke all the time, and then I just hit wig and dress. And as as subtle as it sounds, it makes a difference. Yeah, like old comedians, you know, ad lib jokes and keep them in the act. But do you sit down and actually, you know, with an idea and sit down and try to work it out on paper or no? Yeah, I do both. I mean, because I often add lib an idea, uh, I mean, really often, and uh, uh, write it down, and then sometimes I develop it further. And yeah. But when did this all begin, this whole interest in comedy? Well, I mean, it really is back to when I was a kid. I mean, I had total interest in comedians when I was 10 years old. That was the first time uh, I, I ever spoke to him. Then I met him uh, when I was working at the Comedy Magic Club and my manager, Jimmy Miller, uh, was there. And he said, hey, Shandling's going to do the Grammys and uh, he needs uh, jokes. And, and he said to Gary, you should hire Judd. Judd will write you some jokes. And then Gary didn't <laughs> really respond. And then three months later, out of the blue, uh, he called me and said, could you help me write? Did he some remember jokes? you from the from when you were in high school? No. In fact, I probably didn't mention that for years. Really? After that, to any of these guys? I no. That was never my in. I never tried to connect uh, that I had but, met them. But in retrospect, but now have you brought it up to Leno and Seinfeld and and to Shanling that you had interviewed them when you were sixteen? Uh, I've mentioned it and. All of them don't remember it and don't seem very interested in it either. I, Seinfeld was very nice. He just said, I totally, I totally forgot about that uh, and, and got a kick out of it. But these guys gave you the blueprint for your life. Yes, they did. I, and and you, they don't, you know, those people don't get completely the significance of it. Uh, but because they might be having that effect on a lot of people. That you know what they do. I find that hard to believe because if somebody writes me an email or even says that I change them in any way, you know, not only does do I doesn't make me feel good, but I have to fight the urge to go like how how did what did I do? <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully they maybe they do get it. Maybe it's just something that it's hard to it's hard to express or connect about because it is such a powerful thing. It's almost weird to look someone in the eye and say you changed my life. It's almost a shockery sure. right. thing to do, but in some way. I've been a little bit connected uh, to some of those people, and they've been very nice to me as the years go by. I, I, you know, I treasure when Seinfeld sends me a note and says he likes 
funny people or something, right. it means more to me than he ever could know. Because right. I literally thought about him as I made it, and I thought, one day Seinfeld's gonna see this, I better not fuck it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the Shanling uh, conversation, like, I learned something there. I could hear you, because the, 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 the conversation was very specific, and, and you said it was your first conversation with him, and, and it's about writing jokes, and about, you know, in, more so than any of the other interviews, about the career of writing. Yes, that there there was something, but you're telling me that you're only coming at this as as from a comics point of view. But he says that yeah, I wrote for television shows. It probably planted the first seed yeah. that I should be a writer. And when it was time for me to go to college, I didn't know what to major in because I only wanted to be a stand-up comedian. So I applied to USC Cinema School because I didn't know what else I would do. I right. didn't really want to make movies, but I, I I became a you know I was studying screenwriting at USC, and maybe that was part of people like Shanling saying, you know you have to write for yourself, you have to you know create your own destiny, and and that maybe it had more of an effect than I I thought about. The greatest thing about all of these is just comedy somehow saved our lives when we were kids. Like I you know when I think back on it, what of Leno and Merv Griffin and and of Shanling when I first saw him that. You know, they to me that they had control of everything. They could do this thing, this thing to make yeah. people laugh, to bring. Yeah, I mean, they were, they were, they saved my life somehow because I remember watching all of them. And then when you're talking to to Shanling and to hear these guys, you know, talk about this joke thing, that just the joke thing, like for him to say that it could take a year to tag a joke, because I I'm the same way. I mean, things just sit there, and then you don't know when the tag's going to come. And that's part of the thrill of being a comic. And, you know, and, and Leno talks about it a little too, that, that he doesn't write anything down and that Shanling sometimes writes things down. And you know, Jerry's very anal about constructing things. But the thrill of, of, of a joke spontaneously happening is, is really the thrill of doing this thing. And, and you could be your own man. That's what I took from it. Oh, I can work on this on my own, yeah. practice it, write it, and absorb the blows of being terrible at it for a few years but if i'm committed i actually can do this if i'm great at it i will have a career and it's all up to me it's not up to anybody else it's just what i put into it if i believe in myself yeah and that was a, an empowering idea because i was very comfortable saying i'll take a crappy job for 10 years to figure out how to do this at night yeah that was never something that i was a, a afraid of and I often think that it's ridiculous that in this business, at some point you start to make a living at it. Yeah. Because it is the perfect example of something you would do for free. <laughs> and I say to my yeah. kids, I don't know what you want to do for a living. I just lucked out that the thing I do pays well. Yeah. But I would do it anyway. It's just it happened to be a weird jackpot. Yeah. But if it was like... 18 grand a year, I probably would be doing it right now and we would be in a tiny apartment together. <laughs> Going over my act. <laughs> exactly. Where do you go from here? Like right now, you're established as right. like one of the top comedians and you get work not only in the clubs but in Atlantic City. Um, where, how much farther can you get? Because only a certain amount of people work like shows by themselves at the Universal Amphitheater. Right. Well, to do that, you have to have exposure and how you get that is... It's a tricky point that I'm at, that everyone that, that you'll be talking to is at. Because um, there's a lot you could do a TV series, you could do a sitcom, which a lot of people don't want to be associated with. You could do movies, they're hard to get, and it's hard to have a hit. You could just do stand-up and hope that you catch on after a while, like Gallagher, you know, and you got specials and did it that way. There's a lot of different ways. Um, I'm going to do acting. I'm going to do some acting because it's easy for me, and there's a lot of good vehicles for exposure as an actor. Yeah. And, uh, but stand-up is what I am, I'm a comedian, you know, and the acting will just be to improve my visibility. And what kind of vehicles are you looking for? Mm, quality. <laughs> it's, that's my only real consideration, it could be anything, as long as the people are trying to do something good. Um, there's a lot of things I've been offered that I, w I didn't do because I don't want to do a piece of junk, I'm not starving, you know, and I I feel a responsibility to the people that like what I've done so far. And I think the only reason they like what I've done so far is because I've done everything I can to make it really high quality stuff. Okay. So I want to stick to that. What would success be if you achieved success of everything you wanted to do? What would it be? At what level? 
Um, I think what Bill Cosby is doing to perform in concert, to perform in the, the top rooms in the country, to be, on, well, he does his commercials, you know, but to be well known and to be considered one of the best stand-up comics you can see. That's what I want to be. I want to be the best that I can possibly be. Well, that should do it. Okay. That's part one of a two-part interview with Judd Apatow. Uh, part two will be coming up on Thursday. And in that one, we really talk about you know, comedy philosophies. We talk about movies, movies he's made, his favorite movies. Uh, and, we, and we really talk about how he feels about his career and where he's at now. And of course, I talk about myself a bit. So look forward to that. Uh, Judd Apatow, part two, uh, coming up in just a couple days. And you can go to WTFPod.com. Uh, you know, send me some feedback uh, on these episodes if you like and get on the mailing list so you can know ahead of time what's happening. Uh, that's WTFPod.com. And obviously you can uh, get all the links to all the other stuff there. <laughs>